Hello, everyone, and welcome to another special edition of the Albany Law School podcast. I'm Ben Myers, Assistant Director for Communications and Marketing here at Albany Law School. Today on this edition of the show, we're going to be dropping in on a presentation from our online graduate programs, the Effective and Practical Management of Employment and Disability Benefits, Workers' Compensation, and Disability Law. And this was recorded on February 24th, and the featured presenter here is Alex Dell. And there's going to be three major takeaways from this presentation. What benefits employees are entitled to claim and receive under New York State workers' compensation and disability benefits law, how to effectively process and administer workers' compensation and disability benefit claims, and ethical considerations, the delicate balance between the effective delivery of benefits to the employer and the employee, and the considerations that go with both. If you like this episode of the podcast, make sure you subscribe on any of the major podcast services or listen to back episodes on our SoundCloud account. Also make sure you're following us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram to keep up to date with everything happening at the law school and also get your coronavirus updates at albanylaw.edu slash coronavirus. Enough from me, let's get to the presentation. A very good afternoon to all of you. Thank you very much for, for coming to to join this uh, this webinar with uh, Albany Law School, part of the online graduate programs team. Um, my name is Will Trevor. I am the assistant dean and uh, director of uh, online programs here at uh, Albany Law School, and uh, I'm uh, I'm delighted that you've been able to join us. This is uh, our HR and practice webinar series: effective and practical management of employment and disability benefits, uh, workers' compensation, and disability law. And uh, just uh, moving on to the next slide. Uh, so there is credit available for this. It is both CLE, which is continuing legal education credit and um, professional development credit as, uh, as well. Uh, so as I mentioned, this webinar is offered by Albany Law School. We offer it in association with the CHRA, the Capital Region, Human Resources uh, Association. Now they are recognized to offer both uh, SHRM uh, professional development credits and also this is uh, eligible for, for HRCI, HRCI credit as well. And now if somebody can mute their microphone, one of the, uh... thank you. Um, the uh, this continuing legal education credit is certified by New York State's um, Continuing Legal Education Board. Um, we are an accredited provider of CLE in New York State, uh, and this conference, uh, this conference, this webinar is a, a source of one CLE credit for both transitional and non-transitional attorneys in New York State. Um, New York State Continuing Education Board regulations state that credit shall be awarded only for attendance at an entire course or program or for an attendance at an entire session of a course or program. No credit shall be awarded for attending a portion of a course or a portion of a session. Now I'm obliged to say that. So uh, next slide, please. And uh, also just uh, to mention a little bit about our partners here, the Capital Region Human Resources Association, the CHRA. Um, they've been around, they're 75 years. They've been around 1946, they, uh, they started. If you want to expand your network of professionals and your body of, of knowledge, um, then they're the organization to join. If you see down the bottom there, there's their, their email info at uh, chra 
org, and their annual conference is going to be held virtually on May the 5th, 2021. So if you want to know more about the Capital Region Human Resources Association, then get in contact with them at info at crhra.org. Next slide, please. And also, we'd like to mention the fact that we have just launched here at Albany Law School a graduate program. Uh, it's uh, titled Human Resources, Law, Leadership and Policy. Now, we launched it in spring 2021. It's a nine credit certificate. Uh, it's, a, it's a master's uh, and it's an LLM if you have uh, a JD. Now, uh, the, the degree can be completed in as little as six months and it is aligned with, with SHRM, which is the Society of Human Resources Management, meaning that is a, a flexible program, but it's also career focused and uh, designed to meet your, your career needs. Not only that, the program has been designed and taught by human resources industry professionals, many of them practitioners uh, in various roles in human resources. Uh, and if you want to know more, please call us on 518-390-0261 or send us an email to graduateadmissions at albanylaw.edu. Next slide, please. Our next event is actually tomorrow. Um, uh, it's Thursday, February 25th, 2021. Time is one o'clock till two o'clock. And again, that's uh, Eastern time. Uh, this one is about blockchain and cryptocurrency, the legal framework and, uh, and future trends. Again, it'll be via Zoom. Um, looks like we have, we have about 600 people registered for that already. So it's gonna be very popular uh, and a very interesting panel of, uh, of um, blockchain and Bitcoin professionals and, uh, and attorneys to, to give you an interesting take on the, the future trends uh, in terms of the, the legal framework for blockchain and cryptocurrency. Next slide, please. Your speaker today. Now, Alex Dell, he is the founding attorney of the law firm of Alex Dell, PLLC. He's got offices in New York and Florida, which is actually where he is at, uh, at the moment. Uh, he has over 25 years of experience dedicated to representing injured and disabled individuals in the areas of uh, workers' compensation and disability law. Uh, Alex is also a member of the Executive Committee of the Workers' Injury Law Group, the WILG, uh, which is a, a nationwide organization of attorneys who re represent injured workers. And for 25 years, he's worked as uh, an NCAA Division I hockey referee. And I have it on very good authority that uh, during his, uh, his talk, he is going to be uh, mentioning a, a rather interesting um, hockey anecdote. So sports fans stay tuned to the end where you'll you get to hear his uh, his hockey anecdote but without further ado uh, I would like to introduce Alex Dell. Alex I will say to you at about 20 past I will need to interrupt you so that I can give out the CLE password for those folks who want to claim uh, CLE credit. Okay sounds good and, and for the record uh, hello to everybody and I'm actually in sunny Albany New York today and enjoying this nice sunny weather amongst the snow. Uh, but I wanna thank everybody for joining me today. And I'm honored and privileged to be here uh, with all of you to talk about workers' compensation and disability law. And as uh, Will alluded to, I basically eat, breathe and sleep workers' comp and disability law for over 25 years now. And if you can believe it, I enjoy it too. 
Uh, Will did say as one of the requirements for today that I wasn't allowed to tell any miserable lawyer jokes. So I'm not gonna be able to tell those, but uh, perhaps we could have a, a situation after where we could talk about those. Uh, but I am gonna focus on uh, what is very critical to all of you, depending on what roles you play uh, in employment situations. And that is dealing with individuals who have become ill or sick as a result of their employment or perhaps uh, due to a non-work-related injury or illness. And I would say right from the outset that effective communication in this regard is essential to develop a working trust and relationship with your employees or the people that you're supervising or overseeing. Uh, and you may say, well, you know what? I've been in this role for several years and this employee has been here for several years, but I can tell you that the stakes and the situation and the environment changes drastically after someone has been injured. And now there's a question of whether they can continue to work or not work and what happens with their benefits, their pay, juggling schedules and the like. So um, we're gonna consider that throughout the presentation, but also consider too, that the Workers' Compensation Board who administers workers' compensation claims in the state of New York uh, has changed drastically over the time that I've been practicing. And what I mean by that uh, specifically is that they have become extremely reactive. They used to be a very proactive agency, meaning that if someone was injured, if they got hurt, there was a hearing within a couple of months of when they got hurt and then typically another hearing that would occur after that point. And now uh, it's more, we'll let <clears throat> the employer, we'll let the insurance carrier run the show. And if there's a problem, then we can intervene. And that means more than ever that what you do, how you react to people, the decisions you make about their situation is critical because it may lead to them uh, having a very good working relationship with you with respect to their claim. It may create distrust, it may create uh, a loyalty issue, and it may also create a situation whereby they uh, wanna have a lawyer represent their interests. And uh, when you look at when people hire lawyers to represent them uh, before the workers' comp board or against employers and carriers, when does that usually come about? Well, it comes about basically in two situations. Number one, uh, there are some people that want a lawyer right from the very beginning. And then there are other people that come to you when there's a problem or they perceive that they had a problem or there's an emergency and now they want legal representation. But a lot of it has to do with uh, the employer didn't let me do this or their insurance company didn't let me do that. So effective communication, not only with the injured individual, but also the insurance company uh, that is ensuring your particular employer is also essential uh, when handling these types of claims. And, and I did promise Will that I would share at least a couple of tips uh, to the employer carrier side, even though uh, you know I represent individuals who have been injured with their workers' compensation, social security disability, New York disability retirement and veterans administration claims. So, but with that backdrop, I wanna talk briefly about the types of claims that people will encounter uh, when they're handling workers' compensation matters. And basically, regardless of the condition, it will fall into one of two categories. It will fall into a category of an accident or an occupational disease. And the problems don't really come up 
in terms of specific sudden accidents. I think we all appreciate when those occur and exactly what's going on. But the issues come up more so when we're dealing with occupational disease claims. And what do I mean by that? I basically mean a condition that develops over time that is related to and or a risk inherent in the individual's employment. For example, someone who does a lot of lifting over time and then develops a problem with their back or someone who does a lot of typing who then develops carpal tunnel syndrome over time. They typically cannot tell you the exact date in which the condition occurred, but they can tell you other things. And these other things are so critical when you're trying to help navigate, is it a work-related matter or is it a non-work-related matter? And what am I going to use for the date? Because the big question that people will always ask is, well, what's the date of accident when you're dealing with something that developed over time? And actually the proper inquiry when you're dealing with an occupational disease is not a date of accident, but rather what is the date of disablement? And that is a term of art under the workers' comp law in New York. And what that basically can be is the date in which someone first goes to the doctor and gets treatment. It can be the date in which they're told by a medical professional that they have a specific diagnosis, which is work-related. It could be the date in which they first start losing time from work. Because in many cases, people will tell you, well, I've had these symptoms for years. And then you ask them to pick a date and then they somehow guess that it was two, three or four years ago. But the reality is all the two, three or four years ago was, is when they think that the symptoms may have started. But the reality is they haven't necessarily gotten to the point where they have a date of disablement because they haven't met one of the criteria that I talked about. So as you're analyzing and processing those types of claims, you want to get that type of information because that type of information is critical in trying to assess where that individual is with the claim and whether ultimately the claim could still be considered timely or perhaps it's not considered timely. In these situations, many people often start with their primary doctor and their symptoms are clear, but the history of what led them to that point is not as clear. And in those situations, it may be that the first time that they go to the doctor is not necessarily what the date of disablement is going to be. It may be based on a later date when the provider makes clear that their employment was contributory in terms of their injury or illness. So you wanna keep that in mind uh, when you're looking at these types of claims. Uh, if it's something that developed over time, could it be considered an occupational disease? And if so, what data can you collect to help make that determination? Because in most of those situations, the employee who is working for you is equally confused about how that claim comes about and ultimately becomes a compensable claim or for that matter, maybe a non-compensable claim, which then uh, results in a disability matter as opposed to a work-related matter. But to really make those determinations, you need to get that information from the individual and obviously uh, a good understanding of what their job entailed and what their work involved. Now, uh, with that said, a few hot topics that I think are important uh, for HR professionals and attorneys working in these fields is 
what is going on with people now working from home and getting injured at home? Uh, with the material uh, Will had shared with you, we had authored an article that was published in the August 2020 edition of the New York State Bar Journal. And that article is a summary of the current case law in New York that pertains to people who get hurt while they're working at home. It's a good read to give you an overview of some of the cases that have come about and what you should be looking at if someone comes to you and says, I'm working for you from home and I now have an injury or illness which I want to claim as work-related. The practical reality is that an injury at home can constitute a compensable workers' compensation claim, but it's not automatic. We need to look at the facts. What was the individual doing at the time? Were they engaged in some work-related event or activity at the time in which the event occurred? Or was it purely not work-related? Keep in mind as well that sometimes acts of personal convenience, going to the bathroom, taking a break, getting a drink of water, if those situations occurred in an actual traditional workplace, those would typically be compensable claims. By the same token, if they occur at home, they can equally be considered compensable. But if you're going to make a determination about whether something is or is not work-related when it occurs at home, you really need to have a thorough understanding of all of the facts. Also, what did the employer uh, do to provide a home office or workshop for that individual? Those are some of the things that we're gonna look at as well to determine if the condition is work-related. I know there was a quick question that popped up about whether this applies to Florida. Interesting, Florida has a uh, more conservative or restrictive approach to this. There was just a case where somebody tripped over their pet and the Florida Supreme Court determined that that would not be considered compensable in uh, Florida. New York has not made the same determination, but the key element on all of this is that it's still an evolving area of law and you need to be mindful of that. And that's why the facts are important so that a determination could be made one way or another, whether this could truly be compensable or whether it's not compensable. But the practical reality is we're seeing a lot more individuals developing conditions uh, that occur at home, whether there's sudden accidents coming down their staircase to take a break, or whether they're doing repetitive typing at home, that can equally be compensable. The other hot topic, and I tried to do a presentation today without talking about COVID-19, but uh, I think it's probably not possible to realistically uh, do that. But COVID-19, what is going on with COVID-19 and workers' compensation? The reality is that these claims that individuals are making are being established as compensable work-related conditions when certain criteria or elements are being met. What is the workers' comp board looking at in order to make these decisions? Well, first of all, understand that right now there is no presumption of compensability as it pertains to COVID-19 claims. What does that mean? It means practically that 
it's just not simply presume that your condition was work-related uh, because you say so. You need to prove certain elements to get to that point. Now, the Workers' Compensation Board is not requiring anyone to come forward with exact detail about exactly where the exposure occurred. In fact, a, a large number of cases are getting established where the individual can demonstrate prevalence, prevalence of COVID-19 in their work environment. And as you can imagine, certain work environments lead themselves to greater prevalence of COVID-19. If there are facts that are introduced which demonstrate the prevalence of COVID-19, together with a positive COVID-19 test result, that can be sufficient to establish a claim as compensable under the workers' compensation law. Now you may say, well, what about medical evidence? What medical evidence is necessary? The case law thus far, other than a positive test, is not requiring an individual to come forward with evidence stating that the COVID-19 is related to their employment. But they have indicated in decisions that if a medical provider can indicate that there is a reasonable probability between the development of COVID-19 and their work environment, then that medical is sufficient to move forward. In other words, they're not looking for a doctor to say with 100% certainty that the condition is related. If it can be stated that there's a probability or that it's more likely than not, or that there's a relationship between the two, then that is generally gonna be sufficient to demonstrate that the COVID-19 condition is work-related. And you need to be mindful of the argument that, well, this could clearly not have been contracted due to their employment. And the idea that if you make that argument and you make that argument successfully, you potentially open up the employer to some general liability. Because remember that if someone has a workers' compensation claim, which is compensable, with very few exceptions, that becomes their exclusive remedy against their employer. In other words, they cannot bring a general or civil lawsuit against their employer for their injury or illness. However, if you contend that it was not due to their work or it was not contracted in the course of and arose out of their employment, then you actually open yourself up to that type of general liability. And I think that's one of the issues that should be considered, particularly if you're defending these claims and looking at them from the perspective of whether we should or should not accept the claim. And Alex, so, I'm yes. sorry to interrupt. I just need to deliver the, the CLE password. Uh, and that password is graduate, G-R-A-D-U-A-T-E. And uh, for those of you uh, on the, the call who want to uh, receive SHRM credit uh, or HRCI credit, we will uh, send, be sending out the certificates later as well. Sorry, sorry, Alex, take it away. All right, well, that was perfect because I needed a breath there, so that was good. And I drank a water too. Uh, so with that said, um, that leads nicely into uh, the next issue, which is uh, why do you want to provide workers' compensation benefits uh, to an employee? What are they going to gain from getting those particular benefits and how will that 
be beneficial to the employer? Well, first of all, uh, contrary to popular belief, workers' compensation does not pay for pain and suffering. The two main big basic benefits that an individual gets if they have a work-related injury or illness is number one, medical coverage. And the medical coverage is without copayment, without premium, without deductible, and typically can extend uh, for that individual's lifetime subject to certain authorization rules and subject to certain medical treatment guidelines that provide certain recommended treatment, but also put limitations on other treatment without obtaining further authorization. It also provides uh, for travel expenses to and from doctor visits or diagnostic imaging. And many people often forget about that. And that may make a big difference to an individual who is out of work. And so these are things that need to be considered in terms of helping that individual get the treatment that they need so that they can come back to work and be productive in their workplace setting. The second big benefit is the money benefit. And the money benefit, uh, which we could talk about for hours, uh, basically comes in two forms. It comes in the form of a temporary disability benefit and it comes in the form of a permanent disability benefit. And temporary is just what it sounds. It's typically the period immediately after someone is injured up until a determination gets made that they have reached maximum medical improvement and that they're at a point of permanency. And what that typically means is that an individual, if they're not able to work, can get a percentage of their gross weekly wages before they were injured, inclusive of their overtime, and also inclusive of any part-time or side jobs that they may have. And with less hearings being scheduled by the board, the board is finding out less information from people that they have more than one job. And consequently, they may be getting compensated from the loss of income from your employment, but not aware of the fact that they can likewise be compensated from the loss of income from their other employment. And that's an important consideration, particularly if someone is immediately out of work and trying to determine if they're gonna be able to provide for them and their family. So it's something that you can also bring to the attention of the insurance carrier who's administering the claim because ultimately they're responsible for the loss of income, even if that individual has more than one particular job to keep that in mind. The other thing to keep in mind is that if somebody does have a serious injury and they may have a permanent condition, to make them aware of their rights with respect to claiming a permanency award. Because in New York, uh, regardless of whether you're able to work, you may be entitled to a money award for any loss of use, for example, of an extremity, or if it's a more catastrophic injury to your head, your neck or back that prevents you from working, and now you have loss of income, loss of job, it's important to make people aware that there are these benefits that can provide protection to them if they're not able to work. And those as well are based on a percentage of their salary, their gross weekly wage for the year uh, prior to when they are injured. That's typically what we look at when we're determining if someone is gonna get paid and if so, how much are they going to get paid uh, while they're out of work. And uh, getting into further detail about the, the benefits as far as 
uh, medical and indemnity. Uh, again, would take a lot of uh, time and certainly, you know, I can answer questions that people have uh, offline about that, but I want to get into some discussions that I know come up in the workplace that create some friction that I think will be beneficial to you. And that is uh, the dichotomy between, is this a disability claim or is this a worker's compensation claim? And I can't tell you how many situations I look at where it seems as if the employer either didn't have enough information or just simply determined that this should be disability, it should not be work-related. And that particularly comes up in the context where the injured employee either can't properly explain to you or inadequately explains to you the nature of their injury or illness something that develops over time, carpal tunnel syndrome, a back problem. They cannot pinpoint a specific accident at work. And then all of a sudden, now they're in a disability claim and not a worker's comp claim. And that's potentially very prejudicial to the injured worker if it is truly work-related because unless you are an employer who offers disability benefits beyond the state statutory uh, maximum, you may be in a situation now where that individual is limited to $170 a week for 26 weeks while they're considered disabled. And on top of that, that money is being taxed. And because in New York State right now, the maximum short-term disability rate is one half of an individual's gross salary subject to the max of 170 per week. And so if it is truly unclear whether it is work-related and the workers' compensation claim is being fought or contested for whatever reason, it is certainly a good idea to encourage that individual to collect short-term disability pending the outcome of the issues of controversy with their workers' comp claim. And if it ends up being work-related, the disability carrier can file a lien and ask for repayment of those benefits that were paid to that individual while a determination was pending regarding their workers' compensation claim. And likewise, I think uh, many know that if it's truly a not work-related situation, then they can avail themselves of disability benefits. But the bigger issue becomes whether they should be educated about potentially filing this as a workers' comp claim uh, and or a short-term disability claim. At the end of the day, it's not gonna be both, but what the short-term disability does, it bridges a gap or a loss of income to that individual while the claim, the workers' comp claim is being fought or adjudicated. Because keep in mind uh, that while there is a mechanism to pay somebody without prejudice under the workers' comp law, uh, while the case is being fought, in many cases, what ends up happening is that there are no payments being made whatsoever, and then that individual has no income. So keep that in mind, but also keep in mind that in that situation, this gets into uh, return to work issues as well, whether it may be better for that individual to get unemployment benefits as opposed to short-term disability. Now, the practical reality is that you're not gonna collect both short-term disability and unemployment, 
short-term disability is for someone who is disabled and unable to work. Unemployment in this context would be for someone who is ready, willing, and able to work, albeit light duty with restrictions, but the employer, for whatever reason, is not able to accommodate that individual. If that's the case, we may suggest to that person, while the workers' compensation claim is pending, that they should file for unemployment as opposed to short-term disability. Why would we do that? Well, right now, the rates for unemployment benefits are substantially higher than short-term disability, and that would assist that individual during the period of time while we're waiting for the workers' comp claim to be adjudicated. And believe it or not, uh, you can collect workers' compensation and unemployment at the same time, so long as you're not considered 100% disabled from all forms of employment. And where that typically comes up in the employment situation is where the individual gets released to come back light duty or full duty for that matter, uh, but more or less in the case of light duty. And the employer says, I'm sorry, we, we had to fill your position. We don't have any work available for you. That individual at that point is ready, willing, and able to work within restrictions. They could qualify for unemployment, number one. And number two, they could qualify for workers' compensation so long as the totality of the two benefits does not exceed their calculated wage as determined by the Department of Labor. So that is something that could be a byproduct of you as the employer not accommodating an individual and letting them come back to work. So you wanna be mindful of that as far as what could trigger a claim for benefits depending on what happens with that person's employment situation. Now, return to work issues. Uh, a huge issue that comes up in the workplace, especially when you're trying to meet deadlines, keep schedules, maintain productivity, and someone goes out of work and you want that person back to work. Oftentimes, when an employer tries to bring someone back to work, there's one critical step that is missed. And that critical step blows up the entire opportunity to bring that person back to work. And the way it typically starts is that the insurance company or the employer has a doctor report that says that this individual can come back to work within limitations. And then immediately the employer fires off a letter to the individual that orders them to come back to work. They send it to them, certified mail, return receipt requested. We want you back on Monday, March 1st, and you're gonna come back to work and work. Doesn't get into detail about what you're gonna do. Uh, doesn't copy in, for example, the representative for the claimant or the injured worker or their attorney. And equally problematic, nobody went to the attending doctor and cleared the ability uh, for this individual to go back to work. Nobody provided a proposed job description to that individual. And so now you're in a situation where you don't have the blessing of the attending doctor. In many cases, you don't even have a job which you want this person to do. You just want them back to work. Remember that 
if you're going to be in this situation, you need to cover all of those bases. Best practice would dictate that if at some point a doctor does indicate that this person can come back to work would be to find out what would be the restrictions, what would be the limitations, and then to create or provide a proposed job and ask that provider to sign off on that. And here comes uh, one of the secrets or one of the tips that's often uh, missing when employers try to bring back uh, some of our clients back to work. And that is uh, they don't get the blessing of the attending physician. They don't send a letter to the doctor on notice to everyone involved that says, dear doctor, we have a proposed job that we would like uh, your patient and our employee to perform. Here is the job description. Here is the job duties. Uh, here is what would be physically required of this individual. Do you believe that this patient can do this job as proposed? If so, please sign this document and send it back to us. And if you have the blessing of the doctor and then the individual employee does not come back to work, now you've created some leverage for the situation where if the individual did not cooperate, if they did not come back to work, now there may be a situation where their workers' compensation benefits could be jeopardized. But all too often, one or more of those critical steps are missed. And when those are missed, it basically creates a situation where the workers' comp board will generally intervene and say that that was an inappropriate or uh, unacceptable attempt to bring that individual back to work and then it fails and then you need to start over. So those are things to think about uh, if you're going to bring someone back to work. Also be mindful that if you are gonna bring someone back to work and they're not gonna uh, be in the same role or they're not gonna get overtime or they're gonna get paid at an hourly rate, which is less, you need to consider that they have a potential claim for reduced earnings at that point. And what I mean by that, for example, is if they used to make $1,000 a week in gross wages, and now the position that you offer them pays them $700 a week in gross wages, they're literally losing $300 a week. The workers' comp law says that they could potentially be entitled to two-thirds of that differential. So that would be one of the byproducts to consider if you're going to bring people back to work in that situation. But these are critical issues when you're talking about whether I should bring back someone to work or I shouldn't bring someone back to work. You want to think about the ramifications of that before you get into that. Um, and again, keeping in mind throughout communication and trying to build a trust or rapport with this individual who may have been very loyal to the company for many, many years and now all of a sudden is thrust into a role that they know nothing about and they're looking for guidance, they're looking for support. And that's a critical moment where you can help gain their support. Um, unfortunately, a lot of what has happened uh, with certain nurse case managers that we deal with is that uh, a, a patient will meet with their doctor, the doctor will clearly say to them, look, I don't want you going back to work. And then an hour later, a nurse case manager sends a letter to the doctor and all of a sudden now the doctor's note says this person can work. And it's unbeknownst or surprising to the injured worker. 
And frankly, it, it's a backdoor mechanism to try to bring someone back to work that in most cases will not only backfire um, on the attempt to bring the person back to work, but will also create a level of distrust that you're trying to avoid uh, when you're trying to balance the interests of the company and also uh, what would be in the best interests of your employee who uh, presumably was a loyal, hardworking member of your staff prior to their injuries. And with that said, um, we'll let the cat out of the bag in the beginning, but uh, I didn't tell all of you this in the beginning because I wanted you to like me, but I did used to referee uh, division one hockey games for 25 years. Basically, I wasn't getting yelled at enough uh, as a lawyer or by defense lawyers or my wife. So I had to go ref hockey games for fun. Uh, but one of the ways referees got in trouble is the same way that people in this field get in trouble. And that is they have tunnel vision. And what do I mean by that? Well, you know, if you're the referee, you were focused on one part of the ice surface, but you missed the trip or you missed the guy, slash a guy or hit the guy over a head with a stick or trip a guy. And when it came to uh, workers comp and the world of disability, what it meant was, and what it does mean is when someone is injured, it may not just be a workers comp claim. It may not just be a disability claim and it may not just be an unemployment claim particularly if you're dealing with someone who's in a catastrophic situation where their employment is ultimately going to end and they may or may not find other work activity, you need to think about other benefits that these individuals may benefit from. And those include social security disability, they include uh, a long-term disability retirement for those that are working in the public sector, the New York State retirement system were nicers for New York City, the retirement system. And if you have veterans dealing with veterans administration disability claims, because all of these benefits in many cases can be pursued simultaneously. The issue is whether some of them will offset or reduce one or more benefits. But the point is, is that if you don't at least look into pursuing these benefits, you may be in a situation where uh, you may have prejudiced uh, yourself or an employee simply because you waited uh, to pursue that benefit. And I think what happens now, especially in the environment that we're in currently, people uh, who were considering stopping work and now are teetering on disability or inability to work saying to themselves, I should file for social security. I'm age 62. This is the time to do it. Well, I think if you took a hundred individuals who were age 62 and you said to them, uh, did you know that you may be eligible for social security disability as opposed to your regular social security retirement? A vast majority of those people wouldn't know what you were talking about. But the issue with that is that if someone takes a social security retirement at age 62, which is the earliest that they can do that, it's a drastically reduced benefit compared to what their full retirement age benefit would be, which for most people nowadays is somewhere in the 66, 67 years of age range. And in many cases, it can be 25 to 30% less if you took a regular social security retirement at 62, as opposed to Social Security disability 
And the way you look at this is whether somebody is uh, not only incapable of doing what they used to do, but given their age, given their education, and given their prior work experience, uh, are there jobs in the national economy that they could do? And, and if the answer is they could do some work, uh, but not engage in what we call substantial gainful activity, which is currently in 2021, the ability to only earn $1,310 per month, they may be better served applying for social security disability. And in fact, they could do that even before they reach age 62 and still be entitled to essentially their full retirement age benefit. But these are some of uh, the benefits that you want people to be aware of if they are in a catastrophic situation and they are trying to provide for their family. And it looks like it's going to be the end of their employment. And in the back end of that, it may also lessen the possibility that they try to bring some other type of claim directly against the employer because they're otherwise getting benefits from other sources that are going to provide a stream of income sufficient to take care of them and their family. Because as I said earlier, uh, you can receive multiple benefits at the same time. There's many people who think you can't collect workers' comp and social security disability at the same time, for example. That's not true. Uh, there's a formula that we use that basically allows you to get up to 80% of what you used to make when you combine workers' comp and social security. And if you exceed that amount in workers' comp, then there may be an offset or reduction of the social security disability benefit. But the point is uh, they can be pursued simultaneously. And that's something that number one, uh, from an ethical standpoint, if you're looking out for the best interest of the company and also trying to balance the best interests of the injured individual, uh, you're really providing them with a benefit in the sense that you're helping them uh, create a succession plan or an exit strategy uh, that's going to make them uh, feel better about an otherwise already very difficult uh, situation. So uh, with that said, some, some takeaways that I think are really important, and we've, we've talked about this already, in terms of building trust, the communication that you have with the individual is key. And this works both ways. Uh, we tell individuals that we represent all the time, if you truly want to return to this place of employment, you need to continue to communicate with your employer. And if it's nothing more than I'm still out of work, I have a doctor visit coming up, then that would be sufficient. Uh, no issue there in that regard. And likewise, um, with employers staying in touch with employees. Um, I'll tell you a story we had a few years ago. We represented a woman and it was uh, the time for the settlement hearing and it really was uh, a great resolution of the claim. Uh, it was a great settlement for her. Everything was in place. Everything went very well at the hearing. And then in the post hearing meeting that I had with this woman, she said, Alex, I have to tell you, I'm very, very, very upset with this claim. And I said to myself, what is it now? What, you know, what did we do wrong? What could have been done differently? And you know what her one gripe was throughout the whole proceeding that went over about two to three years? She said, you know, after I got hurt and at no time after I was injured, 
did the employer ever send me a card or ask me how I was doing and hope that I felt better? And that was all she cared about was that she could care less at that moment about what a wonderful settlement we were able to negotiate on our behalf. She was preoccupied and fixated on a simple greeting card that she never got from the employer. So if you're already doing that, great. If you're not, maybe it's something to think about in terms of how you uh, communicate with the people that you work with. Um, these are emotionally charged situations. They're difficult to handle. I get that. Uh, there are some nuts and bolts when it comes to this. And there's some black and white stuff too. Notice to the employer. If somebody gets hurt, they got to give you notice of the accident within 30 days in writing. If it's an occupational disease, they get two years from when they knew or should have known that it was work-related. But beyond some of these specific technical requirements, a lot of it is how you communicate uh, with the people that you are serving and are representing. And, and to do that effectively is a balancing act uh, and making certain that you know, you're looking out not only for the interests of, of the company that you may be representing, but also looking at it from the perspective of how can I best help this individual get the, 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 the evaluation or treatment that they need. In some of these cases, um, it is appropriate to say, you know, you should have your own attorney representing you in these cases. And that's not a weakness uh, to make that recommendation because what you have to remember, because people will ask this all the time, they'll say, why do I need a, a lawyer? Well, one of the first things that you should know is that the employer and carrier will be represented by an attorney at your hearing. And if you're not going to be represented by an attorney, then you're not necessarily going to be on the same level playing field. And sometimes things can get resolved uh, in a much quicker fashion because you have two skilled experts talking about the same thing and understanding uh, what the benefits are as opposed to someone who's just trying to paw through it for the very first time. So um, Will promised me I had uh, time for one quick story and then I'm gonna answer some questions. So how am I doing on time, Will, all right? You're doing great. It's uh, it's almost 10 minutes to two. So we're, we're, we're waiting with bated breath for this story. So it's a hockey story and it's a lawyer story too. So it was one of those days and you know we've all had them where uh, the lawyers were upset the judges were upset with me. Even my own clients were upset with me. And uh, I had left Albany and that night I was assigned to referee a final game between Cornell and Clarkson at Cornell University in Ithaca, New York at line of rank. And if you're a hockey guy or a hockey gal, uh, the reality is there's probably no better place in the country to watch a college hockey game than Cornell. So of course, to make a long story short, uh, the game comes down to the final seconds at Cornell and Clarkson scores the game winning goal and they go on uh, to the final round of the playoffs and Cornell is eliminated. And of course, it's a controversial goal. And who's on the goal line, but yours truly. Uh, fortunately, the video showed I made the right call. What was unfortunate was that uh, there was a blizzard that night, and normally it takes about two hours and 45 minutes to get back to Albany, but that night it took about six hours. I walk into my bedroom at like two or three in the morning, and my wife wakes up, and she says, Alex, is that you? And I said, yep, it's me. And she said, how was your day? And, and I told her all the things I just told you guys about how miserable it was and how terrible it was. 
And at that moment, I was really looking for, I thought the one person in my life that could give me a little bit of sympathy. And you know what my wife said to me at that point? She said, you know, Alex, if you really wanted people to like you, you picked the two worst professions in America. And with that, I said, good night, Tina. And she said, good night, Alex. And, and that was that. So uh, with that said, I'm, I'm glad to take on any questions that anybody has. Um, and again, you know, if there's issues that come up after, uh, I'm more than happy to discuss that with you as well. But Will, did you want to uh, see if there were any questions that we could answer? I did. Uh, there is, we have seven questions. And so first one question is from Janet Strominger. Hope I pronounced your last name right. Do workers' comp monetary benefits get discontinued when the claimant is eligible for Social Security retirement, not SSDI? So the answer to that question is no, they do not. And there is never an offset for regular Social Security retirement if someone gets that benefit. Okay. Second question is from Susie Tropiano. I've heard you say a few times the importance of getting as much information as possible about a situation. Is this something that the workers' comp insurance carrier will typically do, or is it the employer's job to ask questions? Is there a good resource for important questions to ask to make sure we're correctly classifying as STD or WC? So that, that's an awesome question. And, and I will tell you that one of the main things that put employers and carriers for that matter at a big disadvantage is they don't talk to each other. They don't get information. Carriers are only going to be as good and as knowledgeable as the information that employers give to them. You should have a uh, open line of communication with the carriers. Let them know about the work environment. Let them know about things that maybe you or someone else within the employee knows because otherwise uh, they may be guessing on that. And at the same time, trying to balance that with keeping the emotions out of this. I can't tell you how often emotions creep into these claims. And, you know, I really want the person to have this benefit or actually it's, I think it's the other way around. But, uh, but the point is, is that putting those emotions aside and getting information, you know, that whole concept about knowledge is power. I can't tell you how powerful it is for a carrier once they get that info. So great point. I'm glad you brought that up. A couple of questions now from Robin Miller. Um, first one, Alex, does the employer have to hold a position or, or modified position beyond FMLA state leave law requirements for someone on WC? So another great question. You're, I'm going to presume that the person has been notified that they are on family medical leave time, which allows them to have a protected employment for a certain number of weeks, up to 12 weeks. Uh, after that period expires, there is nothing contained within the workers' comp law that would require you to keep that person's employment unless there is a collective bargaining agreement in place. So if you're dealing with a private employment situation, no collective bargaining agreement, you do not have that issue. Now, with that said, let me say that one of the worst things you can do is right after somebody gets injured is to terminate their employment or perhaps even just immediately after that expiration of the FMLA time, unless you've given them the appropriate notice of such. Because what happens when you do that, although someone can be terminated, 
it raises the question of whether the termination was in retaliation for that person claiming or attempting to claim workers' compensation. And when we look at those situations, very rarely is there a smoking gun. Very rarely does someone say to somebody, if you file workers' comp, I'm gonna fire you. I think I've seen that maybe twice in about 26 years. So we put together those cases through circumstantial evidence. How do I do that? Well, you know, someone works there for 10 years. They're a model employee. Their reviews are awesome. They could do no wrong. And then all of a sudden they get hurt. Now they're the most rotten employee that you've got. Guess what? There's going to be some red flags there that are going to be raised by that. So that's where, you know, you take a look at that situation. You take a deep breath and you say to yourself, do I have to terminate this individual right now? What message is that going to send to the other side? But it is permissible to do that. You just got to pick the right time to do that. Alex, we do have we do have five minutes, so I think we may if if uh, we may be able to get through these next questions. There is a second question now from Robin. Uh, if you're not required to hold a position, do you have to keep them on the books as an employee and continue their health insurance benefits until permanent disability or clearance to right to work? So there's nothing within the workers' comp law that would require you to do that. But if you have a specific uh, contract or policy of insurance that requires you to do that, uh, then the answer would be yes, you would need to do that. But uh, if not, then there's no requirement that you do that in that situation. I mean, other than uh, COBRA requirements, which are really, I think, beyond the scope of our discussion today. All right, here's a, an anonymous question. Does the employer actually have a duty to advise the employee on issues of uh, social security disability or veterans benefit? These are areas of expertise that the typical HR office would not have. Is it enough to generally alert them that they will need to look into these benefits? Yeah, I think, you know, another great question. I, I think the main thing is just making people aware that this may not be their only benefit. I mean, look, we all have different niches or areas of expertise, and that's what makes everything great, that you have resources or people that you can avail yourselves of and, you know, talk to them and say to them, look, you know, you should speak to other people about whether there's other benefits that you can get. I think the, the worst thing you can do is, is give advice about something that you don't know anything about. But if you're at least saying to them, look, there are benefits beyond this, um, I think that would be an important thing for you to consider. And, and beyond you know, having a moral or, or, or ethical duty to do that, I'm not certain that there's really a law that says you need to do that. But it's, it's something that I think would be a benefit and people would look back and say, wow, this individual was really looking for my best well-being. And uh, another one from Robin Miller. Robin asks, uh, uh, do you work for companies outside of New York State? So my practice uh, is focused on representing individuals in New York and in Florida uh, with their workers' compensation, uh, New York State, Florida Disability Retirement, Social Security Disability. We represent veterans uh, in connection with their VA disability claims. Uh, so our, our areas of practice are contained within New York and Florida. I am also admitted in Connecticut, but really our practice is focused on New York and Florida. All right. And C. Michael Rager asks, are there any death benefits or compensation part of the benefits discussed? The answer is yes. If an individual dies as a result of a work-related accident or condition that developed over time due to a disease or illness, uh, the surviving spouse 
and certain children, depending on their age, can be entitled to benefits. If there are no beneficiaries, there is also what we call a no dependency death claim in New York. So the answer is absolutely yes. And uh, this is an anonymous question. Is a fall in the employer's parking lot compensable under workers' compensation if the fall took place after the employee punched out? Great question. Well, you know, you're asking me as someone who represents injured workers, so you know the answer is yes. But it's a question <laughs> of fact, right? Just like we talked about earlier about working from home. We look at all the facts. Does the employer own the parking lot? Uh, was it within the precincts of their employment, meaning was it within close uh, geographic proximity to where they work? Uh, was that an area that was open to the public? That is an area that creates a lot of litigation, but the answer is it can definitely be compensable, but we need to hone in on those facts. And that's something you know that I can obviously uh, talk about in further detail later if you would like. Alex, that was fantastic. We've uh, we've just reached two o'clock. Um, your presentation was awesome. Most of the people on this call are, are practicing HR professionals, so to hear things firsthand from a, an experienced attorney like uh, like yourself was uh, was was incredible. Um, uh, we even loved your anecdote. It was worth staying tuned in right to right to the end as, as some soccer manager famously said that these things are not a matter of life and death they're more important than than that so um uh, it was uh, it was good to hear folks um i hope you'll join me in in congratulating and thanking alex uh, i will send out uh, an email after this uh, it will include a link to a survey which would be grateful if you'd uh, you'd respond to that survey. For those of you who perhaps posted those anonymous questions that we didn't get to, uh, if you respond to my email um, and give me your email and your address, I, um, Alex, I hope you won't mind if I pass those on to you if, you, if you'd answer directly to those, to those people. Yeah, I'm happy to answer those. And I've also shared my contact information. So if anybody does have uh, questions or issues and they wanna talk about them, I'm always happy to do that. So feel free to reach out to me in any way. Okay, all right, folks. Thank you very much for coming today. Alex, thanks for being a great speaker. Don't forget tomorrow, our next uh, webinar is on blockchain and uh, cryptocurrency, the, uh, the future trends. Um, and uh, we look forward to seeing you tomorrow. Thanks for coming, folks. Thank you.